It's Friday, December 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has instructed House Committee Chairman to move forward with articles of impeachment against President Trump. The timeline will move fast, as articles could be ready next week with a vote before Christmas. President Trump, for his part, says he wants to get it over with quickly and move on to the trial in the Senate. Tolu Olorupina, White House reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how impeachment is ramping up. Next, the huge success of RuPaul's Drag Race has launched dozens of stars, and now Hollywood is catching on to the booming drag queen economy. Drag queens have come up from primarily doing nightclub shows to selling out arenas, getting on the billboard charts, and even doing red carpet appearances for films like Frozen 2. Katie Kilkenny, associate editor at The Hollywood Reporter, joins us for how the queens are blowing up. Finally, as internet culture has become everyday culture, and we are living in the days of viral everything, many people have come to love viral pets even though they have never met them. And what happens when those animals pass away? We also grieve their deaths. Most recently, cute cat Lil Bub passed away, and the internet world mourned. Abby Olheiser, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is about the Constitution of the United States and the facts that lead to the president's violation of his oath of office. And as a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. Joining us now is Tolu Olorunipa, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tolu. You got it. Sure. So it's on now. The House is moving into this new phase, the actual impeachment of President Donald Trump. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in a statement earlier today, she said that she's directing the chairman of the House committees handling the inquiry to proceed with the articles of impeachment against the president. What did she say today? Well, she came out and gave a very somber speech where she reached back into U.S. history and talked about the founding fathers and how they put impeachment in the Constitution for a time directly like the one we're seeing, in which she is basically accusing the president of abusing his power, engaging in bribery, trying to solicit something of value from a foreign government to interfere in the upcoming election. And she said that President Trump's actions are not in dispute, and because of that, they leave the Democrats and the Congress with no choice. I think those were her words but to go forward with impeachment. Yeah, I and mean, she's really elevating this whole thing and making the statement that the stakes are very high. As you said, she's bringing in the Constitution, the founders. She said our democracy is what is at stake with this. And we know that this whole process has been very partisan from the beginning. Even with the House Judiciary, with their witnesses the other day, the legal scholars, three Democrats, one Republican, and even those people were split on party lines. The three Democrats were saying, yes, all of these things are impeachable offenses. The one Republican said no. So this is going to be a tough thing to navigate. And Nancy Pelosi was even asked by a reporter when she gave her statement earlier, are you afraid about Democrats being vulnerable if they vote for this? And she said, this is not political. This is about the Constitution. This is about far more important things. When Nancy Pelosi decided to sort of change her stance and say that she was in favor of 
opening an impeachment inquiry, it was a big shift because earlier in the year, she said that impeachment is something that divides the country, that she's reluctant to do it. She didn't think the president was worth even going down the road of impeachment. But now we're hearing that based on the president's dealings with Ukraine, the idea of this quid pro quo to interfere with the 2020 election, that Democrats feel that they have no choice because the president was so brazen and because his actions were so far in the direction of abusing his power, that they feel that they have to take this step. Otherwise, the entire idea of impeachment would be sort of null if they didn't use it in this case, because they think it's such an open and shut case. And that's what we heard from Nancy Pelosi today, was that even though she's not gleeful about this, she's not happy about this, she does feel that she is sort of called by history and called by the Constitution to move forward with this process. And this is something that's only happened just a couple of times in U.S. history in terms of a president being impeached. But it does appear that the Democrats have the support that they need. Nancy Pelosi is known as a very capable and competent vote counter, so she would not be moving forward if she did not have the votes. And uh, I think that her statement today is a sign that the Democrats are definitely on board, at least enough of them, to move articles of impeachment out of the House and over to the Senate, that President Trump will be impeached in the next few weeks. How has the president reacted so far to this news? Well, he has spent a lot of time reacting on Twitter, as he likes to do. We got a couple of tweets earlier today in which the president said that he wants the impeachment process to be fast. He said that if they're going to do it in the House, they should just get it over with, do it quickly, and then move over to the Senate where Republicans are in control, and he feels like he'll get a fair shake in the Senate. He's sort of starting to look forward to the idea of having a Senate trial where Republicans will be in control and he will feel that he may be able to get certain witnesses and certain privileges that he hasn't been able to get in the House impeachment process. So we have seen a shift in the uh, White House strategy in which before they were sort of thinking maybe the Democrats wouldn't go forward with this, maybe they would go with a censure or some other alternative to impeachment. Now that it seems very clear that the Democrats will impeach President Trump, the White House is starting to take a more aggressive stance and start to look toward the Senate trial, which could take place in January, and look for ways to both win that in the public sphere in terms of the messaging, in terms of how the public views it, but also the fact that the numbers are in their favor in the Senate. Not only do they have the majority, but in order for the president to be convicted, it would have to be a two-thirds vote to oust him from office. They feel pretty confident that that's not going to happen. So they're going into this with the idea that they can use the Senate trial to score some political points to allow the president to have a talking point that the D.C. establishment tried to impeach me and take me out, but I was able to survive. And you do see the White House starting to strategize for the eventuality of the president being impeached by the House and acquitted by the Senate going full steam ahead into the 2020 election. There was an interesting moment during Nancy Pelosi's announcement today when a reporter asked, do you hate the president? She was already leaving the podium. She was walking backstage and she stopped and she kind of lectured this guy and she told him, don't ever associate that word with me in this context. How did that play out? Yeah, that was quite a moment. And I think that will be one of the seminal moments of this entire impeachment process. Nancy Pelosi often gets those shouted questions as she's walking away from the podium. She very rarely answers them. Sometimes if they're provocative in a more lighthearted way, she'll answer with a joke as she keeps walking. But this time she answered the question and walked back to the podium and really wanted to make the point that she is not a hateful person. She's not doing this impeachment because she hates the president. She even said that she prays for the president. She said that this is a somber moment and the president 
left her and the Congress with no choice but to move forward with this impeachment. Tolu Olorunipa, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Our television show really is about the freedom of expression and love and colors and music and movement. It does sometimes feel like those things are going away. So we feel it's our duty to at least show young people how to preserve that great tradition. Joining us now is Katie Kilkenny, associate editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. Hollywood is finally catching on to the booming drag queen economy A lot of this really is due to the success of RuPaul's Drag Race, the TV show, and they've launched dozens of stars. People are going to red carpet appearances. They're getting deals for things like that. But the big money that a lot of them really make is on the road, road shows, doing conventions, things like that, and other performances. Katie, tell us a little bit about the big drag queen economy right now. So as you said, this really started in 2009 when RuPaul's Drag Race got started, but it's sort of ballooned since then, Um, and particularly in 2017 when the show went from being on Logo to VH1, where it reached a broader audience. So right now, drag queens used to be playing in individual nightclubs, but now they're playing arenas. Work the World, which is a RuPaul's Drag Race tour, went from being in 10 U.S. cities in 2017 to 50 in 2019, and they're doing big business internationally and in Europe. And this economy has basically spanned a bunch of different areas. We are now seeing drag queens making the billboard charts for music, for singles. They are doing fashion collaborations and makeup collaborations. They are showing up at DragCon, which is a big drag queen convention that happens in three cities now. That attracted 100,000 fans in 2018. So we're seeing drag queens sort of in every part of pop culture now, and it's really become mainstream. And even in some places you wouldn't expect, I mean, studios like Disney are getting drag queens to come to like the premiere for Frozen 2. Can you explain that one a little bit? That was what caught my attention for the story was the fact that Disney, which is a conservative company, has now finally caught on to drag queens as a way to endorse some of their products. And in my research, I basically found that Disney's late to the game. You know, a bunch of mainstream Fortune 500 companies have been using drag queens to endorse their products, have invited drag queens as guests to various events, places like W Hotels, which is part of the Marriott franchise. Converse has worked with a child drag queen who's 12 years old, many, many places, and not just during Pride Month. And so Disney has sort of caught on to the fact that they can reach an audience that is really, really invested in drag queens by inviting these folks to their premieres and having drag queens share pictures with people like Angelina Jolie and Kristen Stewart from Charlie's Angels, and that they can gain a lot of goodwill from drag queens' followers if they invite these folks. And so we're seeing more and more queens appearing on red carpets where they didn't actually star in the movie. They're just there as an honored guest. Talk to us about the importance of RuPaul and the TV show and how this really set it all off. I mean, all the things that you mentioned, we're getting streaming platforms dedicated to some of this stuff. And a lot of this is either being co-produced by RuPaul or just has some kind of attachment to it. So RuPaul and the company that produces RuPaul's Drag Race, which is called World of Wonder, have been instrumental in mainstreaming drag culture. So obviously they started the show, but they've also done these tours that have appeared worldwide. 
that have helped spread the appeal. And they are additionally doing shows internationally. So they've done one in Chile. There's now one in the UK. There's one coming to Canada. There's one in Thailand. And they're just about to launch a drag con in London as well. So they've been instrumental. And they've also created DragCon, which is a place where fans can meet their drag queen heroes in person and they can buy merchandise from them. So they've also created different areas of revenue for drag queens that they didn't necessarily have before, which has been huge for folks who are spending thousands on costumes and wigs and makeup every year in order to keep their business going. And so they've been a huge part of the new economy of drag queens. Yeah, one of the contestants on Drag Race said that the cost for her look was $4,000 just for the show alone. Others said that they spent about $6,000 on costumes, the wigs and the makeup. But we're talking about all these different revenue streams and this booming economy. They're making a lot of money. There was one person who I guess represents a bunch of different people, the owner of Voss Events, says that some of the drag clients make more than $500,000 annually. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah, he wouldn't tell me specifics, but he said they're all in the highest income bracket, all of his clients. And that's the cutoff for the highest income bracket. So that's about as much as we know. And these folks are doing well. And they're doing well, not just because they dress up. They're doing well because oftentimes, They have a lot of different talents that they're sort of working off of. Drag, one source told me, it's just a gateway into these other talents that folks have. Maybe they're singers, comedians, actors. And so different businesses are starting to realize that and take advantage of the fact that these folks are multi-talented in doing business with them. Katie Kilkenny, associate editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the things that has increasingly become a reality as sort of the decade that has brought us the culture of influencers has marched on towards its end is that some of these pets that we've come to love and follow online are now dying and we're all going through this grieving process together collectively. Joining us now is Abby Olheiser, reporter at The Washington Post covering digital culture. Thanks for joining us, Abby. Thanks for having me. We're in this moment in time right now where internet culture is part of everyday culture now. And one of the things that we've all come to realize what's going on, I mean, there's all sorts of viral people, influencers, things that people get attached to on Instagram and Facebook and all these things. But the other side of that is that we also have viral pets and people love watching animals on social media. I know I do, my wife does. Sometimes you just need that little moment to kind of decompress and not think of other things and just laugh at some cute little animals. But one thing that happens when we get attached to these animals is that they inevitably die. And then we have to go through this grieving period. The one that just happened most recently is a cute little cat named Little Bub. Uh, It's a cat with big eyes and has a tiny, cute little tongue hanging out and everything. She just died and people went online. It was trending on Twitter and people were grieving this immensely. Abby, tell us a little bit about how we're starting to grieve these viral pets now, too. First off, losing a pet, grieving a pet is something that kind of used to be an experience that you had within your own family, maybe with your neighbors, maybe with other members of your family, maybe with your friends. So pet loss as something to experience is not new. But what is new is this sort of explosion of pet influencers, as you were discussing, that we are suddenly finding ourselves becoming very, very attached to the lives of animals we've never met before through the internet, through sites like Instagram for these daily updates. And one of the things that 
that comes with that and has increasingly become a reality as sort of the decade that has brought us the culture of influencers has marched on towards its end is that some of these pets that we've come to love and follow online are now dying and we're all going through this grieving process together collectively. When Lil Bub passed away, I had a friend immediately post something and he went to a cat convention and took a picture of Lil Bub. This was, you know, months and months ago now. And so he posted that right away. And then I had another friend who posted how sad that was and then relayed her own story of the passing of her own pet. So it definitely kind of makes you think of the animals in your own life, even though you're grieving over a pet that you never really met, as you mentioned. When this happened, I asked some of my colleagues to send me some of the pets that they had been following that had died because I was trying to get a sense of sort of how large this world is and how, how many of these pets that have become famous in the past several years have started to pass away. And I got a lot of responses with of pets with a wide variety of followers. You know, one mentioned Nana, who was a rescue senior pit bull with 170,000 Instagram followers who died just a month ago. There was a much smaller following cat named Casper who died a few years ago, and a writer from The Cut, which is a New York-based publication, published an entire meditation on kind of what it's like to grieve the death of a pet through the internet because of this pet's passing. So yeah, it's the volume and it's also the collectivity once you get into stories like Lil Bub, who had millions of followers, or Boo, who had, I think, 16 million followers on Facebook alone. You had an interesting thing that you mentioned in your article talking about the first keyboard cat and then the second keyboard cat, and how is two sides of a cultural history? Tell us a little bit about that. One of the kind of interesting things about this is that a keyboard cat is actually two cats, essentially. So there's the actual keyboard cat, who was the one who was actually filmed, and that film became viral. And that keyboard cat died sort of before the idea of a pet influencer could really exist. And then a second cat benefited sort of from the fame that the first produced. And so you have kind of this one cat sort of passing away in relative obscurity, and then another cat associated with the same idea kind of having a very, very different circumstances when he passed. I think you mentioned at the end of the article that there was a, a Shiba Inu who people, there was many rumors that that dog had passed away too. And people have to even say, hey, wait a minute, this dog is still alive. The Doge Shiba Inu is still alive and there's constantly rumors that she's passed, which are not true. I had an interesting experience with that with Gabe the dog, who I mentioned in the article, who is this dog that had a really funny bark and inspired a bunch of really viral YouTube remixes. And I found Gabe the dog's videos after Gabe had died, but I didn't know that at the time. So I started watching these things, thought these videos were really funny, um, the dog was adorable, and then finally get to a video that is a tribute to this dog who has passed. And this was all sort of after after Gabe had passed away. I feel like we're getting to a point where we're getting to peak influencer with people, but do you think we're getting to that with animals or do you think this is just going to be a continuing trend? I think it depends on what you mean by influencer, right? So I think the idea of an Instagram type influencer and sort of the way in which you're used to consuming an Instagram influencer through sponsored content, through photo updates, all that stuff, that's definitely changing. But I don't think that the idea or the space for animals to become influential kind of public figures online is going away anytime soon. If you look at websites like TikTok, for instance, there are already viral pet influencers on TikTok that maybe you and people who are on the platform haven't heard of, but, you know, a lot of people have. Abby Olheiser, reporter at The Washington Post, covering digital culture. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.